Are you navigating the ever-evolving wilderness of church and culture? Well, you are not alone on this journey. FaithLead has walked alongside thousands of church leaders, drawing valuable lessons from the many challenges they have faced. Our upcoming video series, How to Take Your Next Faithful Step, draws on these insights from real-life ministry. Whether you're grappling with issues like dwindling church participation, volunteer involvement, or maintaining congregational connection and activity, join Dr. Alicia Granholm, Senior Director at FaithLead, for an engaging four-part video series. After each video, participate in an interactive Q&A where you can share your perspectives and connect with fellow ministry leaders, learners, and volunteers. You'll explore the six essential theological commitments, discover the five core tasks of ministry, and hear more about the four key pivots to navigate a faithful future in ministry. Are you ready to join this interactive experience? Sign up now to take part. Turn ministry challenges into opportunities for growth and connect with a community dedicated to taking their next faithful step to follow God into a hopeful future. If you find yourself being more exhausted, overwhelmed, burned out and uncertain as a church leader than you ever imagined, you are not alone. You are in the right place today because in this episode, we will dive into how our primary model of leadership in the church has caused so much exhaustion and overwhelm among church leaders today. And what are some practical steps that you can take to a more sustainable and a communal way for you and your faith community? Hello, everyone. I'm Terry Elton. And I'm Alicia Granholm. Welcome to the Pivot Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about how the church can faithfully navigate a changing world. A lot of pastors that we talk to know that leading a church by themselves is unsustainable, not to mention unbiblical. And yet, because this was the primary leadership model that they were trained to use when leading a congregation, they aren't sure what it might look like to lead in a different way or what other leadership models there are. So today in this episode, we want to offer a case study of a thriving congregation that relies almost exclusively on lay leaders who are supported by clergy. We are really excited to have Sean Steele with us today. He's one of our Seeds Fellows alumni and ordained Episcopal priest. Sean, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, so I am currently the vicar of St. Isidore Episcopal Church in Spring, Texas. St. Isidore is a pretty complex organization. Currently, it is comprised of 11 different small Christian missional communities that is held together by various uh, visible and invisible instruments of communion. We also operate the Warrior Church Gym and the Abundant Harvest Pantry, which served over 110,000 families in 2023 with 1.2 million pounds of food. We also have a social enterprise called the Abundant Harvest Kitchen and Bistro, and they operate a bistro, a full catering company, and a food truck. So yeah, my background, I got a business degree from the University of Texas a long time ago, studied finance, entrepreneurship, and accounting. Um, then I got a master's in theology from Creighton University, studying with the Jesuits back in the early aughts. I uh, got an MDiv from the Seminary of the Southwest. I'm a fully trained mediator, uh, licensed Daring Way facilitator. I'm an ICF certified coach. And currently, I'm pursuing a Doctor of Ministry in Wonder at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Austin, Texas. 
I love that. And I love that you say that you're a church entrepreneur and a tradition innovator. Welcome to the Pivot Podcast today. Happy to be here. Sean, can you tell us a little bit more about St. Isidorus? Yeah, St. Isidore uh, was launched in 2016, and it really was designed to be an experiment um, in what it means to be church in the world. Uh, I have um, been going to a traditional church in one form or another. Um, since I was a kid, I mean, I really didn't actively start going until I was in college, um, so, so I was about 21. My, my primary exposure was in the Roman Catholic tradition, um, but I did go to other churches and participate in um, other expressions of church. And then I got into real active employed church ministry by the time I was 25, so very early on, and then started studying and sort of figuring out what my call was. Um, went through the process and uh, in the Episcopal tradition and the Anglican tradition, and then spent uh, four years in a very traditional suburban high church Anglican setting. Um, but, you know, at the time I, I was still under the impression, and I think this happens to a lot of us, um, is, is that God was calling me in spite of my own personal narrative and, and my family of origin and all of the traumas and the things that I'd been through. And there was something that happened early on in my ordained ministry where I realized that God wasn't calling me in spite of my narrative, but God was calling me in and through my narrative, right? And so at the same time, I was doing some thinking about, about how the church is organized right now. And it seems like it's, it is rightly, right? It's a product of the, the, the current church is a product of the current culture and the expression, right? Um, and, and it was a, a culture and a, and a church that was formed for information, that, that it was designed to give people right information. Um, and, you know, it's theology largely for a lot of least churches in the South and a lot of people in one form or another was largely transactional, right? They were selling their own version of fire insurance. And so, of course, you're going to have um, a lot of authoritarian leadership. You're going to have a lot of transactional leadership um, that is a result of a church that's kind of rooted in that. And for me, because of the way that I sort of came to the church and my own, my own experience of God in, in Christ, was it was very incarnational. And so I was always having this, this sort of what felt like a disconnect between, you know, an informational church, but an incarnational experience of God and trying to reconcile those two. And so I wondered, what would it look like if we actually built a structure of a church that more reflected that incarnational approach, doing life together. Now, obviously, I didn't make this up, right? I mean, this is this is what people would say, the Church of Acts or, you know, whatever that is. At the time, that's all I had, right, was my background in entrepreneurship and creative thinking and wondering and questioning. And so around 2015, I started, you know, wondering about different models of church and settled on this idea of being what I called at the time a church without walls. Um, and so a church without walls, we were going to meet in bars and laundromats and boxing gyms and houses and Taco Bells. It didn't matter. We were just going to meet in the world and we were going to be held together by these instruments of communion and thinking through what that could look like. Um, you know, whether it is a common set of core values with common acts of service, common acts of worship. Uh, and then realized that we probably needed something physical. We're, we're physical people. Um, we all want to be able to point to our church and say, that's a representation of my values. And so we settled on launching a food truck. So this sort of thing that was going to be at the middle that everybody could touch and gather around and say is sort of an expression, a tangible expression of who we are and our core values. We launched the Abundant Hearted Food Truck. So we, we raised the money and 
built a whole model around that. And so the original model was going to eventually be 150 active Christians around 10 different missional communities, um, all developing their own ways of gathering, their own liturgy rooted in the prayer book, right? There was going to be a lot of wisdom on how we did this. They were going to be held together by good leadership. And, um, and then we were going to gather around the food truck. We were going to have a common identity. And this was going to be called St. Isidore because the church was going to be a threshold once again. Um, and so the whole church is a door. So there was a pun it just so happened the good Lord made St. Isidore the patron saint of peasant laborers in the field, but I didn't find that out until a little bit later on. And so, um, so, so we launched that in 2016. And since then, we've launched over 25 of these small missional communities in one expression or the other. Um, obviously, we've been through a pandemic. We've been through, you know, all kinds of financial things. And uh, the current expression right now, like I said, is there's 11. Um, but now we also have a big building and a facility and a social enterprise. And so it has been an exercise in pivoting is what we say. So that's, it's great that that's the name of this podcast is, is that um, we've constantly been trying to ask the hard questions about what is our context. And, um, and I will tell you that the bigger you get, the more difficult that is because we, at least I'm finding myself getting tied to ideas and structures and, and not core values. And, and just today amongst my staff, I was saying, remember friends, the core values written on our wall is who we are. This is just the current expression of those. <laughs> and, so, and, and this could go away, whatever it is that we're doing. And if we get so locked into survival, then we're no different than any church that's up there right now trying to exist. So, um, so that's St. Isidore. So I'm curious, Sean, when were you first introduced to micro churches or where did that idea come from? So, you know, like the way I tell the story to myself is, is that this was just my own pondering right now. I really didn't know much about church planting or church models or anything like that. Um, I studied systematic theology, scripture and preaching. I mean, that's where I spent all of my time. I'm sure at some point in seminary, I read something that probably was in the recesses of my mind. So in, so in my mind, I was designing this model based on acts, based on thinking about this incarnation. What are people craving? How are we doing life together? Because at the core my, you know, people talk a lot about leadership, but for me, I spend a lot of time just talking about discipleship. Like, what does it mean like, to be a disciple, which is a leader and a follower, right? I mean, it's, it's a both and. And so for me, we have a discipleship problem in the church. And so my focus was on that. Um, and so it just made sense that it would be small communities. In 2016, 15, I got invited to be part of Duke's Faith, Faith and Leadership Foundations of Christian Leadership Program. And that's when I kind of was exposed to, wow, people actually since the early 2000s have been thinking about this, you know, especially with like fresh expressions in, in England and UK and things like that. And so um, then I, I met, I, I did like a series, I'm trying to remember, I think back in 2015, I, I asked around and I made a list of like 10 church innovators and, and sort of planters is what we say, although I don't like that metaphor anymore. I call us midwives because and I, I got a whole riff on this, but I think midwifery is a better idea of what we're trying to do here when we're doing this new thing. Um, because planting, if it doesn't look like a rose, then you failed, right? There's a lot of science in planting, whereas in midwifery, like you can't control so much and you're going to love the kid no matter what, right? So, so for me, I, 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 called, I called a bunch of people and was asking them, like, what do you love? What do you not love? And I think Katie Hayes, who has Galileo Church, um, she invited me up to, to, to shadow her and she's a brilliant human. You should actually get her on your podcast. She, she'll blow you away. Um, 
So she got me, she started asking me a bunch of questions and got me really thinking about a lot of cool stuff in 2015 and really intentionally about structure, like, like some, some complexities. And so I think that, that it all was kind of coalescing right around 2015, 2016 for me. Sean, I'm curious what about, you know, the micro community and micro church uh, structure was appealing to you? So this is where that in and through our story, right? I, I recognize that our churches, you know, Philip Tickle, I think, was the one who said our buildings are becoming our albatrosses, right? And I think that that I I was looking around and realizing that, that, that like we have these these facilities and these buildings and they're falling apart and we're just so scared to close them and shut them down because they've been so sacred and holy in, 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 our, in our history and in our, in our memories and our lived communal memories. And it seemed like there was a lot of, of bloat, um, a lot of expense, and it was holding people back, right, from really living into and experiencing their own gifts, right, because they were relying too much on the professional clergy class and on the furniture to do the work for them. And so I think that for me, it was just, it just made sense that if, if I wanted to be a part of something that was new, that was still traditional in the sense that it's, an, it's traditioned innovation, that we were going to try to bring forward the best of who we were and what the ancestors handed us. And we were also going to think critically about how we gather in light of that and how we form disciples for the sort of the current or the modern sort of age, as it were. I mean, our, I guess whatever you want to call this postmodern, post postmodern, <laughs> whatever it is, um, that, that we needed to have an intimacy and an incarnation. So going back that, that to moving from information and structures that facilitate information and entertainment to structures that facilitate incarnation and relationship. And I mean, there's only, I mean, it's pretty intuitive from that point on that we need to actually have, you can only do life together with so many people, which is actually a hole in my model right now, right? Like at least in the, the part of what St. Isidore is designed to do is it's trying, it's designed to maintain like the role of the full-time seminary trained supported clergy person, which I love. I mean, I feel super grateful and honored to, to get to do the work that, it, to, that, it, that I'm called to do and to receive the training. And it wasn't cheap. Right. And I like to eat and, and have insurance and, and there there's that piece. Right. And so how do we create a structure that still maintains the fourfold ministry as far as we understand it and a sacramental role where we can get into the preaching, the teaching and the administering of the sacraments and the equipping the saints for the work of ministry and not bog down in just all of the other realities of, of what it means to be a professional cleric running a, a traditional church. So one of the things you noted a couple of times, and I just want to lift it up, how we design church puts us on one path or another. And you're saying you reflected on the design to say the current design was a block to do some things. And this design is an opening for other things, right? And so one of the things I'm hearing you talk about in this design, and you started with it, there's 10, 11 different missional communities that have been birthed in this design and they ebb and flow. I almost feel like you're designing an ecology versus, quote, a church, right? A dynamic ecology that parts can come and go and it still can be living. Is that true, first of all? Am, am I reading it right? Yeah, that's that's great. Um, 
So the question I asked my staff this morning is, what would you want to exist here even if you didn't? Right. And then saying, what are you doing to contribute to that existence, right? As a way to sort of help them make meaning because, you know, that's, that's what we're all trying to do. And I think that in all of us actually, because we have all of our core values in a word cloud on our wall and the way that our core values are also theological and that they, they point us towards Jesus. So offensive generosity is how we talk about grace, right? The truth is in the tension. That's how we talk about like the gospel is actually anti-certain <laughs> in the sense that like we're trying to create mystery, not certainty, right? We're, we're, we're pushing back on that. Like our only certainty is in the person of Jesus Christ and that's where it ends. The rest, we're all just trying to live out in fear and trembling, right? In, in awe and wonder. Um, the wisdom is in the room is a huge core value. So even when I preach, I say, that's what I think. Does anybody have a story that gets at what I talked about or something the gospel said? So, I mean, every time we gather, there's an invitation for everybody to share. Right. Um, and so the sacred is in the profane. So like, there's also, there's also something that we've noticed that we're in, we're trying to push back against purity culture and purity Christianity and really lean into that wheat and the chaff and say that like, when you come here, we're not like on some exercise to try to pu purify you. Right. We're, we're trying to live in a complex relationship with ourselves and our ancestors and each other that, that recognizes we were made in the image of God. Right. And yet we are still sort of in this condition that we call sin that we're trying to work out but it's not a purity effort, right? Um, and so, and then we call ourselves a church of misfit toys, right? And, and, and so that's, that's the thing that everybody wants to exist is it's a culture, it's a way of gathering. So yes, when you say a permaculture, um, that's exactly what I, we want to be eternal. And that is not, that's what's allowed us to pivot so many times. I mean, we have changed directions so many times. There was a time when I'd say, we're never going to have a building. And I would say that all the time. And that was really inspirational. That was really inspirational for people. They wanted to be a part of that. And then my wife one day was like, yeah, it's funny you say that because you've got like seven buildings, like the Taco Bell has walls and the laundromat has walls and the bar has walls. She's like, you act like you don't need a place to gather. I'm like, yeah, that's actually really true. What I meant to say was we're not going to have an empty building throughout the week or a building that is built solely for, you know, because then you can't fight the furniture is, is, something that got burned in my brain in my liturgic class by Professor Nathan Jennings was you can't fight the furniture. And I think that, that if we keep that in mind in everything that we do, it'll be wise. So then we designed this space, which is not a traditional sanctuary. It, it's a representation of those core values and what allows us to live into them and worship. We do worship in here. So I'm curious, how do you discern when to let something go and when to start something new? And second, how do you think about leadership in this dynamic ecosystem? Yeah, the discernment of, of beginnings and endings is really hard. Um, it's gonna, and it's harder now than I think it was early on. I think early on, because there was such an impermanency of it all, that we were just like, well, that didn't work. Let's start over here. We don't like that. Let's move over here. And it was, it was a, but now, you know, we have some of these more dedicated programs and things that we've been doing and ministries that we've been doing and even communities. Like, how do you decide to end a community, right? When it's no longer right to gather anymore, which we've done. It's not that they all haven't, like, some of them just didn't start, but some of them we just had to specifically end because it was time. And I, and I think that it goes back to, to, I think, having the wisdom in the room and making sure that, you know, like my leadership style it, it's, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in, in a leadership and organizational leadership class. 
but of course we want to say collaborative and participative, right? I mean, and servant, we, we, we all like, that's who we strive to be. And I think when I'm at my best, I am that. Um, and I would definitely say it's much more situational. I mean, there are just times when a decision has to be made and I'm an eight on the Enneagram. And if I'm in stress and boy, you know, everybody knows, oh, Sean is just, you know, firing off, you know, dictate victims or whatever those are, you know. Uh, but I think having a really good core group of people that are bought in and understand the core values and the mission helps you make those decisions um, and involving people in the grieving process. Cause whenever something ends, there has to be grief and there's gotta be rituals of gratitude and um, you know, good endings. I think leadership development of people in light of this, uh, we, we spend a lot of time talking about the why and the who and not the what, where, when, and how. And so even in my coaching, even when I, when I do workshops for, you know, diocese or parishes or leaders, this has become, this has emerged as, as a really big deal. And if we're focused on the why and the who, then we can start, you know, we can get people out starting new communities um, and stepping up in, in, into that creative process. I also, we, we sit back, uh, some of the leaders and I, and we make grids, uh, and this might sound, you know, we make like concentric circles and grids and we write, there's only 117 active adults and we try to write every single one of them somewhere on that big grid in the whiteboard. And then as leadership, we, we try to think and discern, are they moving closer or further away in their experience? And now, now I, I get the labyrinth and I get that it's not always obvious, but then really intentionally saying like, are we making sure that we're inviting people into leadership um, and, and talking about it as something that is, is, is our problem to solve, as it were? It's our call to identify leaders and invite them in and making sure that we're porous. I also want to tie that to what you said earlier. I'm making the assumption that your first call is discipling. And there's a point in that where that a disciple is looking for an opportunity opportunity or might be ripe for an opportunity that that's when that ask comes, but it's grounded in a deep sense of discipling. Is that correct? Yes. I, I, I'm fond of saying that I am not shy about saying that I have what I call an anthropological assumption that is, that is rooted in St. Isidore, which is that the human person fully alive, right, is the glory of God. And that what we're trying to do is we're trying to help people become more alive and that's pretty clear, like at least as far as I can tell, and I could be in my own echo chamber here, but as far as I can tell, as far as the narratives in the, in the Holy Scriptures, as far as the lived experience of the saints of the church, as far as my own lived experience anecdotally, as well as those that I've seen, there seems to be an arc and a similarity in that about what that looks like. I mean, one could argue that the gospel coming up on, on Sunday, right? I mean, there's a way for us to look at Mark one and say, well, here we go again. I mean, this is just another example of patriarchy and misogyny infecting the church. Of course, she gets up and she has to serve right away. Like, well, yes, that's true. And that's there. Like, we got to be honest and have conversations about that. hundred percent. I, I'm, I'm, I want to be part of those conversations and I want to own that. And there also seems to be enough clues in the text to show that what it means to experience the resurrected life in some way is an arc towards following Jesus and servant leadership of some sort, right? Uh, and and so I mean I think that that that's that's the assumption that I'm making, um, Terry. So when I invite, I, I'm in, I'm assuming that even though it might be uncomfortable for you, it's 
it's because this is this is what it means to be alive and active. John, I'm curious if you can share a little bit about uh, maybe two things. Um, one would be, you know, the actual structure. How do you hold yourselves together as a community? What does it look like for you to have a bunch of micro churches led by other leaders and you um, in your clergy role? And then secondly, I would wonder, you know, if there are pitfalls that you might recommend uh, or ways for people to avoid maybe pitfalls if they would be interested in um experimenting with micro churches in their community as well. Yeah. And I, and I don't know if this is going to be comforting or discomforting for folks, but I, I, I've become pretty convinced that the radical yes has to be governed by the holy no. And there's a lot to that for me. And, and particularly in kind of archetypal stuff, right. That like that we can, we can only get creative if we know somebody is holding the boundaries, otherwise it will destroy us. Right. And so like, for me, I, I, I take the role as a holy no. Like, I actually believe that is the role that I've been asked to do in a model of church like this. And so I don't tell people that, hey, there's lots of ways that you can talk about Jesus in the sense of like, if you start doing hellfire and brimstone, I'm going to say that's not how we talk about Jesus here. And you can have that opinion. That's fine. But that's not our theology as a church forming people. Like, I hold that very close and very tight, right? And so people who are going to be in more of a teaching leadership position, like I don't do fear and shame and abuse. That's just, that's just, I have zero interest in that. And so I'm like, well, you're, you're leaving them out. I am. I learned that the hard way actually. And I have an anecdote or a story about that. And so, so I'm very tight around that. They all have to have a relationship to the sacraments. I am the only priest in the community. So, but I come from a sacramental tradition, right? And so you have to have a robust relationship that is outlined. Every community has to have a liturgy and I, there's a certain, that, that means something, right? Like, and there's a way that we develop liturgies and there's a way that we talk about liturgies, right? The arc is all moving towards baptism for me. I'm not interested in just playing the wisdom game. I'm interested in people making, you know, a baptismal commitment and covenant. Um, so, I mean, there are, it, it, it might not be, when people say lay led clergy supported, they might conjure to their mind something different than what I've experienced as far as in the Episcopal tradition. Um, I'm not just providing resources for people and allowing them to willy nilly. I'm, I'm holding a container that I believed I've been asked to do a sacred container that I, I feel pretty good about the, you know, um, the way that we're doing it. And in the midst of that container, I'm empowering people to live into their leadership and their disciples. But remember, it's leadership and followership, right? Like it's for all of us. I mean, I submit to a bishop. That's a very intentional, right? Is <laughs> that, that it's this tension, the truth is in that tension. And so, um, so for me, um, that's, that's, yeah, I don't know if I answered the question, but I, I think for some people, it's just they want to become resource hub and they're just giving people information to just go out and, and have, you know, a dinner and, and read scripture. That's not what we're doing at St. Isidore. What are some pitfalls that you've had that you might give people some ideas on? Think about them beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I think one is like, you're not going to break the church and you're not going to like, you're not going to break Jesus. Like there's a difference between fragile, fragile and, and sacred. 
And so I like to tell people, like, don't treat the church or the sacraments or whatever is sacred to you, like, as it's fragile. It's okay. And if you cross the line, typically your conscience or the Holy Spirit or whatever you want to say, or maybe your bishop or somebody else will let you know. Like, that line was crossed. But, I mean, we're a tradition rooted in grace, but that's a grace of creativity, right, that we're trying to, to kind of go out there. And we got to stay open to that. I would say that, yeah, if you lean into that radical yes, without the holy no, if you're not holding a boundary, it only takes like one borderline personality to enter in and your little missional experiment will be destroyed. It, it, it really does. It takes one person who comes in, who's got a, some type of, you know, issue going on, whether it's through addiction or mental illness or something like that. And if nobody is watching and holding the boundary, like we had a community that was up to like 30 plus people and um, it was a conversation community. And I allowed everybody to come in. I was just saying, everybody's welcome. I don't care what it is. And then we got a group of six or eight. I can't remember what it was. Uh, fundamentalist Christian apologetic students who were coming in and within eight, six, eight weeks, they destroyed and decimated the entire community. And that's when I realized like, wait a minute, that was my job as a leader, right? Like that was my job to hold the no, like you're welcome here, but only if you apply by a certain ground, you can't, the, the, one of the ground rules for the conversation was you're not here to convince anybody else that they're wrong. I and mean, you can't speak in a way that is threatening and you have to speak with yourself. And they didn't do any of those things. Um, but I was, you know, when I was at the table, I was holding that, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't paying attention. And so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's a few, I think that um, one also <laughs> in your anxiety to kind of get these things going like it's okay to do be slow. I in my in my excitement and in my worry, I I think that I I didn't take time to just pause and trust that this this thing that God is doing it is long and, and the ark is long, and um, it takes a while to build relationships. So there's a book that Slow Church book is really helpful. Just it's okay to go slow. Sean, I feel like we could talk all day but I really appreciate you giving us a taste of what you're up to. One of the things as a sacramental church, as a Lutheran, I think so often we think of new expressions of church leaving the tradition part behind like that you have so invited us to say, no, that's part of the container, right? That's part of the grounding. So that was fun for me to hear. And to hear you think about that through the Episcopalian lens and through all of these expressions of being incarnational. Those are those are two things I'm leaving with today. And I want to invite our listeners to be thinking, what did you take away from today? And do something with it. Not just say this was really fun. Maybe invite somebody on your leadership or ministry team to listen to the podcast and talk about it or try an experiment. I think we're too afraid of fighting over the chairs, as you said, Sean, and we get uh, focused on the wrong things rather than discipleship and incarnation and the gospel today. Uh, so I want to thank you, Sean, for being with us today and thank our listeners for joining us. And this has been another episode of the Pivot Podcast, and we'll see you next week. The Pivot Podcast is a production of Luther Seminary's Faith Lead. 
FaithLead is an ecosystem of theological resources and training designed to equip Christian disciples and leaders to follow God into a faithful future. Learn more at faithlead.org.